1: Big stories, big guests, the big
2: picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, Weekdays, 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR.
2: So some history being made today as the United Kingdom officially approves the uh, Pfizer vaccine and uh, a lot of other dominoes uh, still to fall here as other countries begin approving other vaccines. So it, it is quite remarkable that we've made it to this point this quickly right, that in the same calendar year that this pandemic began, that we now have vaccines uh, to target it and some pretty effective vaccines at that. So some really encouraging news. Obviously, we still got a ways to go. Uh, one of the other issues I want to get to here as well, as we alluded to, uh, is the question of self-isolation, right? Test, trace, isolate, big part of our strategy in, in responding to this, uh, this virus. So when it comes to isolation, The idea being that if you've been potentially exposed, it's a lot better to keep you isolated. So if uh, you develop COVID-19, that it that it ends with you, right, that it doesn't get passed on to anybody else. So how long should that be? It's 14 days right now, and that's based on what we understand to be the upper limit of the incubation period. Um, But that's rare. Uh, The U.S. Centers for Disease Control is suggesting that we could adjust that down maybe to 10 days, perhaps as short as seven, if uh, someone gets a test and that comes back negative. So I wanted to get some insight on whether we got some room to maneuver on this because it certainly is disruptive for people uh, to have to self-isolate for 14 days. And obviously, you want people to buy into the idea as well, and I know that's part of the concern, is whether people are are adhering to that. Uh, So joining us uh, for some insight uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogoch, who's an infectious disease specialist, a clinician investigator at uh, Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Bogoch, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome back to the program.
0: Oh, thanks for having me back
2: on. Uh, let's start first of all just you know with with um you know the announcement today from the united kingdom we've uh, now got official approval uh, of one of these vaccines and uh, your thoughts on, on just you know how we got to this point and how remarkable it is that we've done so so quickly.
3: <laughs> it's incredible i mean we didn't even know yeah. this infection existed 12 months ago and now we're already talking about you know, approving vaccines, not just one vaccine, there's at least four of them that are really under uh, consideration for Mm -hmm. for approval for rollout on a mass scale. Like, this is just remarkable. It's amazing what you can do when you prioritize science, when you fund science, and when you get all the right brains involved in in solving a problem. So, pretty, pretty phenomenal stuff. So, people are saying, well, should Canada speed it up and uh, speed up their approval process. And quite frankly, I don't think we should. I think, you know, everyone needs to do their due diligence, pour over the data, uh, look at what they need to look at without any uh, external pressure. And, uh, and I, honestly, I don't think that the rate-limiting step here in Canada is going to be Health Canada approving these. I think the rate-limiting step is going to be relying on a foreign company in a different country to mass produce this and ship it to us. So I don't think Health Canada is going to be the rate limiting step. Let's give them the time to do what they need to do and I think that we'll we'll see those uh, granted approval for use in Canada probably in short order.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, the data we've seen. And we haven't seen all of the data yet. And, and as you say, it's worth noting that, you know, we've got to take our time and go through all of this. Um, what we've seen from Pfizer and Moderna is really encouraging. I guess there were some questions about AstraZeneca and how they sort of accidentally stumbled into this uh, half-dose, then full-dose uh, regimen. But uh, what have you made in terms of what you've seen on the data side and, and the science side?
3: Yeah, so I've uh, yeah totally agree with your sentiment like we as in the general public don't have access to all of that and i think if you really want public trust and public buy-in you've got to be very transparent and and i really hope that we see uh you know peer-reviewed publications that show the, that show their data they show the side effects they show the efficacy they show all the nuts and bolts of how the how the studies actually unfolded. i think that would be extremely helpful uh, and I think it'll be helpful not only for the medical and public health and scientific communities, I think it's just helpful for the general public as well. We only have snippets of data from the press release. Now, of course, the regulatory bodies like Health Canada, the FDA, all these regulatory bodies, they have access to everything. They all have access to all that data. But I, I think we, we, should, we should, and we will have access to it, but sooner rather than later, especially because we know these programs are going to be rolling out on short order. Um, Interesting about the AstraZeneca. I mean, I think there were some notable hiccups in how that trial unfolded. But I would also say that there's notable hiccups in how they communicated the results of that trial as well. And, like, you would think that a major, major company that acknowledged, you know, several months ago that they have to have transparency and reporting and, and they really want to have the finest products, you'd think that they'd know better than to make those errors. So I thought that was a pretty... Pretty public gaffe that uh, that you do have the risk of losing some trust in the process, and and we we just there's no room for that now. I mean the world is watching, so we've got to do things right. You have to have the right content, but you also have to have the right process.
2: Let's get to the question of, of self isolation, which uh, typically across the country is is 14 days. So if you've traveled outside the country, you got to self isolate for 14 days. If you're a confirmed close contact of somebody who's tested positive you got to self-isolate for 14 days. The Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. suggesting that maybe we could have some flexibility. Maybe that could be 10 days, as low as seven, with a negative test. What What are your thoughts?
3: As long as it's data-driven, I'm okay with that. And I think we're obviously going to make some trade-offs here, right?
2: Yeah.
3: You know, it, With the testing at seven days, it's interesting. There's more and more data suggesting that that might actually work. Um, a lot of that data actually comes from from travelers. So, for example, there's pilot programs in different parts of the world where, for example, if you're landing in, you know, a country, they'll do a test at the airport, you quarantine, then you do a test seven days later, and then you do a test 14 days. Uh, so you get a time point zero, time point seven days, and then time point 14 days. And if you actually look at some of the, you know, there's snippets of data available, but if you look at those snippets of data, if you have a negative test on arrival and a negative test at seven days, almost everyone, is going to have a negative test at 14 days. Uh, so, like, I think if you, so you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that if you have negative tests, two negative tests, seven days apart after an exposure, you're probably okay. But I don't actually know how okay you're going to be. Same with the 10 days. Like, it's probably fine, but I, I'd want to see some pretty granular data to suggest exactly how many people are going to slip slip through the cracks with that and how much okay. infection you're going to get. So, totally open minded to the idea. But let's just make sure we know exactly what we're doing before it's integrated into a broad policy.
2: Because we're making trade-offs here, and I get that maybe we want to alleviate the, the burden on people of the full 14 days or, or at least get more buy-in from people so we know they're adhering to the self-isolation. But it's possible then that, that some people are going to fall through the crack and, and we will miss some cases, right?
3: I'm with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, it's a, like anything else, there's always trade-offs. So yeah. if you say 14 days you know, how many people are actually adhering to those 14 days. Uh, and it, it's hard to know. It's, it's just really hard to know. You can audit this all you want, but it's, it's very hard to know. Uh, whereas if you say 10 days, yeah, maybe you'll have a few slip past the cracks that are going to be contagious after that 10-day mark, but you'll have more people buying in to the 10 days because it's much more easy to do and more appealing to do than a 14-day. So as you point out, I think you're right that you're bang on. I think there's trade-offs. And uh, maybe a 10-day quarantine might actually be more beneficial because you're going to get more community buy-in for that compared to a 14-day, maybe.
2: So let's help people understand what what it is we're talking about here. So this refers to the incubation period. So if you're exposed to this virus, the virus gets into you, you're not going to test positive right away. So why is the incubation period so important then in determining uh, the, the course of illness and at what point somebody tests positive?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple of good points there. So one is that we know the incubation period of this virus is usually... So so from the time someone's exposed, the time someone's infected, uh, and actually shedding virus, that you can actually detect the virus, it's probably about four or five days. And then people can be contagious from the time of illness for about nine or so days afterwards. That's why you get... 14 days. That's, that's where the 14 days comes from. What's really interesting is we know some people are going to have no symptoms whatsoever. Maybe that's about 20%. We know some people are going to have mild symptoms. And, of course, we're all well aware of people who get really, really sick and land themselves in hospital and sadly succumb to this illness. But the issue is you don't know who's going to develop symptoms and who isn't going to develop symptoms up front. You just don't know. It's, 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 we just don't know. We have risk factors we can guess, but we don't know. And, and so that's a problem. The other problem is some people will have mild symptoms, that they just, they're just not going to know they're sick enough or they, they, might, not, it might, not, they might not be aware. Uh, and, of course, they can be shedding virus for one to two days even before they get sick. So you yeah. might feel fine. You're shedding a lot of virus. You're going to get sick, but you're only going to get sick in 24 to 48 hours later, by which point you've already unknowingly infected everyone in your house. So, that, you know, that's why we have a pandemic on our hands. Like it's, yeah, exactly. it's not because people get so sick and die. Because so many people are not that sick, but very contagious. And then of course you overwhelm your healthcare system because even though it's a small percentage of people, it's a game of numbers. And and that adds up pretty quickly. And you know, we're we're watching this unfold in many parts of the world, unfortunately.
2: So the timing of the test and, and the length of the incubation period, this is all relevant, right? Because people might think, Okay, I was told I was exposed, I got a test, I'm negative. Um, but that right. doesn't necessarily mean somebody's out of the woods, right?
3: Right. Right, right, right. That's a it's a great point. I probably should have mentioned that a minute ago because you're totally leading me down that path and I didn't I didn't clue in. Yes. If you're exposed and then you get a test a day or two later, that test is going to be negative. It takes time. The virus has to be processed inside your cells, inside your body. You're not shedding virus. Your test is going to be completely negative right after your exposure, probably for a 4 or even longer period of time, mostly about four or five days. But it can be a little bit longer sometimes. So you can't get overconfident at having a negative test. You actually need another test at least five to seven days later to really be sure that you're not uh, contagious to others. Uh, and, and we see this happen. I mean, we saw this happen in the summer. People would go, when tests were sort of more widely available, people would get a negative test. They'd either be exposed right before that test or right after that test. They'd have that false sense of confidence that everything is good and they'd uh they'd ultimately get symptomatic and shed virus and infect other people around them. We saw that a lot this summer
2: so going forward then if, if we 're going to try to find some flexibility it, it, there's still going to be a need for that testing, maybe multiple tests, and I know there's a lot of pressure on on the testing system right now as it is. Does this sort of speak to to the the more pressing need of having more testing, having rapid testing available?
3: Yes, yeah, it speaks to two things one is. Can you integrate testing into these protocols so that you can shorten people's quarantine periods? And the answer is, you most certainly can. But of course, that takes resources—the tests and logistics, making sure people actually get the tests—and uh, then, of course, communication of the of the results in a timely manner. So that's you know easy to say, but actually hard to do. Uh, the second point is: okay, if you, even if you don't integrate testing, can you just shorten this from 14 days to 10 days? And uh, and the answer is. Probably, I got. I'm sort of couching my words here. It's probably okay. Uh, it certainly hasn't been integrated yet into a policy, but it's probably okay. And I think what they're doing now is they're sort of uh, maybe desensitizing people to this idea, and at least in the general public and the medical and scientific community, because they might go down that pathway. They certainly might. And uh, that'll be interesting if they do. You know, you think about us in Canada, everything they do, we sort of say, well, why aren't we doing that? And, and of (laughs) course, we're always a month or two behind. So that'll put a lot of pressure on uh, Canadian public health leaders to see if they should modify the the protocols here.
2: we'll see if they do. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Bogosh, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Have a great day. You as well. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogotch, uh, infectious disease specialist at uh, Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. So, his thoughts on uh, vaccine development and uh, some thoughts from him on this whole question of, of how long people need to isolate. And it, it is a bit of a moving target. 14 days kind of airs on the safe side of things. But that's a long stretch. It, it really is. I mean, we could split the difference and make it 12 or, or 11. I mean, there's nothing magical about 10, but. You want to be data-driven. You want to be realistic. And what do we know about this virus and what's typical, what's the median, when most cases, uh, if if they're going to happen, are going to present themselves. All right. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. Our number here, 403-974-8255. As mentioned, uh, coming up in about an hour from now, we will uh, go live to that press conference. Uh, Jason Kenney and Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. So um, something more than just uh, the daily COVID update. We'll find out for sure what that is coming up at uh, 3.30. All right, so our next guest, well, he's certainly been uh, busy this year uh, combating um, no shortage of uh, COVID misinformation. Uh, So certainly very much uh, an evidence-driven fellow. He's got a new book out. It's called Relax, Damn It, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. Timothy Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, also Professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, Research Director at the Health Law Institute. Uh, So like I say, a busy guy. Uh, Timothy Caulfield joins us on the line. Tim, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Well, thanks for having me on again, Rob.
2: It's interesting, because obviously, this book was written, or at least conceived pre COVID. um, But but it's still certainly, I I think, relevant. How do do you see things this year in terms of our anxiety in terms of how we perceive science? What's different and unique about 2020? Do you think?
0: You're right. The, the book was was mostly written uh, before the pandemic, and the title was picked to relax down it before <laughs> before the pandemic. But you know, I, I believe it's it's more relevant uh, now than ever because it really explores, you know, all the forces that that twist uh, the decisions that we make every day. So you know, really explores things like the the impact of of social media, uh, of, of the polarized discourse of of um, fear mongering right really you know you're leveraging fear and and misperception of risk in order to sell stuff and to sell even ideological positions and and brands so so yeah I think that 2020, all of those things have been amplified have been magnified um, and if we 've learned anything from from this uh, this covid crisis is the incredible adverse impact that misinformation can have
2: yeah and and look obviously evidence-based decision-making is 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 a good idea at the best of times and the worst of times but you're right I mean you know we're, we're having to make decisions in, in a world right now that's that's still not familiar to us right and so there, there is a lot of fear there is a lot of anxiety and but maybe there's also a skewed perception when it comes to risk right so we've got this reality now where people are maybe more fearful than they should be, uh, and, and we've also got people who are perhaps not as fearful as they should be.
0: You're right, and, and you know this. We've talked about this before. Humans are terrible. All of us, you, me, <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at assessing at assessing risk. We're just not wired to to do that to do that very well. Um, and we are, you know, we are subject to all these forces that um, invite us to misperceive risk. You know, we have like a negativity bias. We are wired to see uh, negativity more than positivity. You've probably heard this before, but negative headlines outperform positive ones, and that's true across cultures. You know, this was a study that came out last year that looked looked at uh, across um, every country and found that to be true. and And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. But the problem is now we're now you know th- that tendency isn't serving us well. Um, and probably not serving us well at all during a pandemic. It it forces us not to make these rational decisions, these science-informed, evidence-informed decisions about how how to move forward.
2: Yeah, there's an interesting anecdote you share early in the book about uh, skydiving and the reaction you get from people when you put the idea on the table, right? That, well, I'm thinking of doing this, or I'm planning on doing this. And there's all kinds of data that that you can draw upon to, to see how, how relatively safe skydiving is. But, the, you know, our perception, it's a great example of how our perception doesn't necessarily mesh with the evidence.
0: You're right. And, and you can imagine what the reaction was. And, and, you know, it's the first couple of pages of the book, so I'm not giving anything away. Right. Um, you know, the reaction was, you know, the people thought I was crazy, not so much because uh, I was doing it, because, you know, people don't care what happens to me, but my family doesn't care. <laughs> because I was taking my 14-year-old boy with me, you know, my son with me, and people thought, you know, how irresponsible of me. Now, an interesting thing is, you know, he's a gymnast and a pretty serious gymnast, right? And that's way more dangerous than skydiving, like the yeah. order of magnitude. And people who were telling me it was dangerous, I have kids who are in hockey, which is way more dangerous than skydiving. But a better example, and when something I really highlight in the book, is how our intentions don't really match our uh, the evidence. Like, you know we want to make the right decision. And a good example is letting your kid walk to school. You know, people want what's best for their kids. They want, they want what is best for their future. And most parents don't let their kids walk to school, even though all of the evidence suggests it's a good idea. And, and why don't they, people let their kids walk to school? The research tells us it's because they're afraid of crime. They're afraid their kid's gonna get abducted, even though that happens so infrequently from a statistical perspective, you can almost say it's not going to happen, right, but it's so horrific that we remember it it's this incredibly powerful um, uh, anecdote um, a, a gruesome anecdote that it overwhelms our, our rational thinking, even though letting your kid walk to school is so beneficial exercise independence um, it, you name it right and uh, it, it, it has an in- impact on our, our decision making
2: yeah it's funny because it's, it's harder for us to to wrap our heads around i think you know i mean we we understand the logic that yeah walking to school is is healthy but it's it's harder to to picture that it's harder to quantify the downside that look yes after you know all of these days and weeks and months and years of inactivity here's what that can lead to whereas it's a lot easier to picture the the white van that that you know plucks your kid off the street or the you know the roving gang you know with the, the switchblades or all these things that our imaginations can conjure and that, that has a powerful impact on, on our decision making doesn't it?
0: It, it, it? for sure it does and, and of course there's a whole market out there selling that that kind of imagery to us whether they're trying to sell security stuff or whether they're TV shows trying to sell a plot it creates this this illusion that these things are common and it has a massive impact. On, on a rational thing, and look, the other anecdote I use in the book again, not giving away anything, is it's early, early in the book is I'm a little, I have a little bit of a bear phobia, so you know <laughs> Albertans can relate to this, I, I'm sure, um, because it's, it, but the number of people that have actually been killed by bears is vanishingly small, right? If you and driving to to go to Calgary, uh, driving to the, the mountains is for sure way more dangerous, but as you said, you can just picture that that very graphic. very graphic um, demise, uh, and it influences our Um, decision-making. It's called the availability bias, and that's why why those dramatic headlines perform so well.
2: It's interesting the way you structure the book, and and you sort of go through what's, you know, kind of a typical day for all of us, and, and all the decisions we make, and all the perceptions we have, the anxieties we have, uh, whether it be how long to sleep, whether it be having that coffee, whether it be using our, our mobile device, whether it be, as you say, letting kids walk to school. And, you know, there's there's a whole host of these that we address every single day. And we probably don't take the time to process how we're reaching that decision, right? These are very quick decisions in a lot of cases. And so whatever it is that, that's guiding us, whether it's our imagination or an anecdote or, you know, an experience we had or maybe something we read, it happens very quickly, doesn't it?
0: You're right. And in the book, you know, the gimmick is it's a typical day, you know. Um, I do try to use uh, big decisions, like when I talked about letting your kid draw, uh, walk to school, and, and little ones, like you know, toilet seat up or down. That's a good one, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how, how you park your car. And there's actual evidence that you can turn to about how to optimize those those decisions. But the real reason I do it is it's a, it is is an opportunity to just think about, you know, how we make decisions and to think about how our society now, and perhaps in, now more than ever, is structured to invite us to make the wrong decision and to be anxious about our decisions. Uh, and so hopefully, hopefully it kind of provides a, a path forward, a path through the noise.
2: Right, I mean, the, the title kind of, you know, gives part of it away. There are a lot of things that we worry about that we probably don't need to. You know, conversely, maybe there are things that, that we are kind of oblivious to that we should be more attuned to. So this isn't about, you know, making people stop and, and pull up, you know, research papers every time they've got to make a decision throughout the day. What do you hope people get from this?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Rob, because <laughs> one of the and to be honest with you it's one of my themes through all of my work is is that there really is almost always a basic kind of fundamental way forward you know uh, you can ignore all that all the noise on on so many topics especially in the area of 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 health so i hope what people take away from it are these you know critical thinking skills which are very straightforward um and and an awareness of our, our cognitive biases that we that we all have, and, and hopefully, you know, uh, the ability to, to make more informed decisions in, in a more relaxed way.
2: The book is called Relax, Dammit, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. It's available now. I think it's got a different title outside of Canada, is that right?
0: It does, and, you know, who the publishing world, who knows why they made this decision. <laughs> okay.
2: but now, so it wasn't United your decision.
0: Yeah, it's your day, your way in the United States oh, interesting. and in Canada, relax. I and mean, in England, because they're so proper, it's just relax.
2: Oh, well, there you go. All right. But it's the same book. Uh, so watch for it. Uh, relax, Dammit, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. Tim Caulfield, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate Thank you. It. All right, there you go. Tim Caulfield, University of Alberta, health law expert. Uh, his uh, book, Relax, Dammit, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety, or at least uh, that's what it's called in Canada. right. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, A lot more still to get to here today. 403-974-8255 is your number. We'll have more time for your calls and your texts. WordFest is uh, certainly a Calgary institution, obviously a little bit different this year uh, because of everything that's going on. But there's an exciting event taking place next week online. More details at wordfest.com. And it's with uh, our next guest. He is musician, actor, author, Alan Doyle. And he's got himself uh, a new book out right now uh, that is uh, available. It's called All Together Now, a Newfoundlander's light tales for heavy times. So December 10th, this is happening. More details at wordfest.com. And you can also find out, by the way, Not just tickets to the event, uh, but the uh, folks at Blowers and Grafton, uh, Halifax Street Food and Bar, created a special Atlantic meal for this event, uh, so you can add that on. Uh, So enjoy some great Atlantic food while you're hearing some great Newfoundland stories. Joining us on the line is uh, the aforementioned Alan Doyle. Alan, so great to have you with us here. Congrats on the book and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I, I'm just now hearing about this Atlantic menu. <laughs> well, they told me that that you might not
2: that. that you might not have heard about this yet.
1: Yeah, like, I, how do I get in on that action? <laughs> like, like I'm gonna have to get. I'm do here in St. John. Yeah. I'm going to have to mimic that in some way. It won't be fair. It doesn't seem fair. <laughs> uh, right. nice, thanks for having me on. And, and <laughs> as I've been saying this week uh, to people outside the bubble, uh, uh, we miss you. And, and please ask us back when the green light goes on. Uh, well, please yeah, come see us down here.
2: I mean, we've all been dealing with this, but I, I think yeah. it's it's a little bit different out in Atlantic Canada. It almost feels like you, you're living in a different world in, in some respects.
1: Well, until very recently, I mean, sure, you know, we were, you know, in a way, it was just like this. I mean, I I played, uh, you know, a dozen socially distanced shows around the bubble in in the late October oh. and November, you know, and I mean, we, Newfoundland, for example, we I don't think we had any cases uh, in the month of June, like like we. It just. Um, We enjoyed, uh, up until very recently, there's been a few numbers bolting up with people coming back from different parts of the world. Uh, The numbers have jumped a bit, but it's been very, very, very uh, uh, COVID-free out this way, and which is um been a blessing you know and uh, so but yeah. you know it feels really odd to be cut off from the rest of Canada for a fellow like me especially because I'm so used to being you know all over the country you know multiple times a season you know and to go but you know from march you know till you know god knows when now without mm-hmm. being in the western half of Canada is very odd for me and so i miss you i miss the gang and i miss i miss the gigs and i miss it all
2: yeah well, thing. I mean, I, look, I, I stay home most of the time anyway, so it's, it's not a lot different for me. But, you know, for someone like you or, or you know, just anyone in the music industry, right? The yeah. idea of playing shows and, and being around people and traveling and, yeah. uh, you know, sitting around the table at the pub. I mean, <laughs> everything that, that that is a part of your life has kind of been turned on its head this year.
1: Absolutely correct. And I mean, so... Financially, it's been extremely difficult for people in my industry,
2: yeah.
1: and you know, spiritually, and you know, your own kind of your own energy has been very tested. I think during this time, and uh, you know, I just felt grateful that I had a couple of projects uh, that keep me busy and and keep me uh, active and creative, and uh, keep an eyeball for the for the lighthouse at the end of this long, long, long tunnel.
2: Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? We look, we look for silver linings. We look for blessings amid all of this, and uh, it, it, it gifted the world this book, right? This is kind of a product of you not having much to do.
1: Totally correct. Uh, <laughs> I was actually planning on a different book uh, that I was starting with uh, the same publisher and. It involved a bunch of travel around Newfoundland, and Labrador, and then over to, uh, England and Ireland and stuff, but of course none of that was gonna get done, so we, you know, they, they asked if I could do something that, that in the, in April, if there's something I could do that I could, that I could get done, like, fairly quickly that would come out this fall. And, uh, so I, I told them about this idea that I had for the longest while, but me just writing my side of the, what my contributions would be to a night in the pub, you know, these are the stories I'd probably tell if we started early and went late you know and and some of the stories are from my young life, and some of the stories would be from my professional life torn around the world, and some of them would be from my current personal life, you know, as a dad or whatever and and this is the way the yarns go and and one thing I insist I, I let people know before they get the book is please don't expect that you're about to read you know, a retailing of some of my greatest victories, because it's not like that at all. <laughs> quite the opposite. It's it's quite often my, my greatest folly, you know, for my embarrassment and your enjoyment.
2: Well, and that's the thing, right? It's sort of the book equivalent, then, as you say, of, uh, you know, being lucky enough to, to sit at the table at the pub with you and, and just listen to some of the many stories you have. This is sort of the book form of that, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's, it's you know, I try as typically as possible to, uh, to describe... In the written form, you know what what it would be like to sit in that 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 hallowed place, as so the Duke of Duckworth on a on a Friday afternoon.
2: And and I would imagine, look, you you've had a very illustrious career. I mean, twenty years uh, with Great Big C, and and you know touring all over the place, and, and playing with and meeting with all kinds of remarkable people. Obviously, you know, there, there are just some amazing stories that that come from your own backyard and, you know, growing up in, living in in, in Newfoundland, right? So wh- where 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 do most of these stories come from? Are these stories from the road? Are these stories from, from your hometown?
1: Yeah, it's very, like I said, like some of them, I wanted to include like a broad range because that's exactly how the night would go, you know, in the pub. You might end up talking about one of your uncles that was, you know, like a crazy wizard, oddball superhero to you. And then you might end up talking about, you know, the time you met Gord Downey in New York City. And then you might end up talking about, you know, how awkward it is when your son asks you how come you're not as famous as Ed Sheeran. You know, <laughs> uh, it's because that's, that's just the way my life is <laughs> lucky as it is, you know. And I just wanted to include them all. But, I mean, one of the things that I think is, comes naturally out this way is that, you know, we've, we kind of recorded our history in rural Newfoundland in story and song, right? I mean, I'm from a little fishing town where we didn't have a local newspaper and we didn't have a, you know, a local radio station or library or anything. So, you know, the tradition certainly... You know, for almost exclusively in my grandparents' time, and partially in my parents' time, was just everything was recorded and remembered by recitation or song or story, or very much an oral tradition, right? So, like the the the, 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 the sort of the creative capturing of an event in a, in a way that's to be resung or retold is is quite common where I'm from. It's
2: interesting. I often wonder about the, the effect of uh, come from away, right? I mean, you know, yeah. Newfoundland was always Canada's sort of hidden gem, right? And now that the whole world knows uh, the Newfoundland story. At least they think they know the story. Yeah. Uh, but what, what do you make of the effect that, uh, you know, the, the story of Gander and, and how that became such a huge sensation? What's been the impact, do you think?
1: Well, I think it's fantastic, and, and the great joy I think and pride that Newfoundlanders have about the Come From Away story, which is awesome, and the musical is fantastic, and, and it's a really a beautiful thing, just an incredible piece of theater. And but I mean, one of the things I think that makes us most proud is that it's really just one of the several stories that they could have told like that, yeah. you know. Just few, you know, a hundred years or fifty years before that when they could have told the story of Lanier Phillips and the Trucks and Pollocks uh, you know, a tragedy down on the on the bureau Peninsula where you know, it was the same thing and then over the course of the over the course of the last couple of hundred years, of course, there's been, you know, untold times when Newfoundland was or Saint John's or whatever it was the harbor of choice to to get it out of the wind, you know, and and I mean, you can only imagine in the last 300 years how many sailing ships from every part of Europe going to every part of the northeastern seaboard, every single one of them passed by here, right, and so, and, you know, we're literally a rock in the middle of the ocean, so, you know, we have all kinds of, you know, all kinds of stories of being a port in a storm and come from away just really encapsulated one of them in a really beautiful way
2: mm-hmm but I mean as you say it it really it really shapes who you are really shapes who you are as an artist and and that's always come through in in your work right I mean you're, you're very much rooted in Newfoundland it's very much a part of you
1: oh I think so yeah and I think that's true from a lot of people from here and I and I'm not totally sure why that is mm-hmm. you know and, and maybe that's a good thing but you <laughs> know like in all my travels to some of the most beautiful and wonderful places in the world you know you'd think somewhere along the way the thought of living in one of them would cross my mind and it never has it's ne- i never ever give it a thought as much as i love being in new york or london or or new orleans or or san francisco or 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 you know or barcelona or all those places i just love in copenhagen and like and but it's never crossed my mind to live anywhere but here isn't that weird i mean it, you know it's 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 just it's never even been a thought it'd be like you know it'd be like me not living here would be like me not you know <laughs> walking on my feet you know it'd be like like, like why would you do it another than that you know look <laughs> like at It's funny
2: so i, I wonder i mean you know, when when you're sitting down to write a book and you, you're you're sharing stories, right, and things that have had an impact, things that have shaped you, which I would imagine is similar to the process of of writing music, right? So, how, how does writing a book compare to to creating music?
1: My my joke is that the hardest thing about writing a book is writing a book. <laughs> and. and um, and I mean that sort of in jest, but in a way I don't, you know, because it's just just about every other artistic endeavor I do in my life. And I've done a few, you know, whether it's, you know, writing songs or producing records or doing tours or, you know, uh scoring a TV show or writing a theme song for something or something like that. I mean, just about all those things are a day or a week or a tour for, you know, and even a tour is made up of single days, right? I mean, just about... Just to, and and then you go on to the next place. So it's almost everything in my life takes a day, you know. And then you're on to the next thing, and then you go to write a book, and, and holy, mo- like three months into it, usually you're looking back, going, "Are we still working on the same thing? Like, are we writing like Encyclopedia Britannica or something? Like, what do we do? Like, so like the the greater mountain of it is is uh is in is is kind of uh, it's less intimidating than it was writing my first one, but uh, you know, you just get used to the. Just the sheer volume of of what you need to put out compared to you know poetry or songs or whatever is 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 quite different and and that is simply is the most daunting difference
2: and you're still active uh, you know you mentioned earlier that you you're you've been playing shows um, you know at at home but uh, in your area but still uh, active and you've still been making music um, so uh, does does this time give you more opportunity, as much as it takes away those opportunities to get on the road and do shows, does it give you more opportunity to be creative?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, There are things that are fueled by time off, and there are things that are fueled by activity. And I'm not totally sure, even for my own self, which is which. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, the other two books I wrote are did on the road. Right And I did them in dressing rooms and on airplanes and and because I, I just found that writing long form prose is a great way for me to pass that inevitable amount of time you have to wait when you're a touring musician you know mm-hmm. and it makes you feel productive and, and, and keeps your head in the game and you know it, it you know keeps you from uh, sitting in a hotel room by yourself falling into the darkness and so I, and then so, so the act of doing one thing in that regard actually fuels doing another thing. You know what I mean. So, in the month of 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 April, when I was home and all we were doing was canceling stuff, I found it very, very difficult to do anything because I was, you know, I I, I wasn't yet sure that we were going to be home for this long stretch, and 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 I didn't have anything to do that fueled anything else. So, um, you know, in the end, I'm not sure I, I know the answer that that. Uh, you know, for example, going forward in my life, will I enjoy this kind of downtime more now? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't be as terrified by a blank day on the calendar as I normally am. You know, so I think I'm in. The, I'm honestly in the middle of figuring that out for myself.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, so the event is uh, next week, December 10th. Uh, more details at uh, wordfest.com. Much more at allandoyle.ca. The book's available now. It's called All Together Now, the Newfoundlander's Light Tales for Heavy Times. Alan, it's uh, been a real treat. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
1: Thank you all very much. Stay safe, and I hope to see you real soon.
2: We hope so as well. All the best, Alan. Take care. Uh, that is uh, singer, songwriter, actor, author, uh, all-around good guy, Alan Doyle. Of course, former lead singer of uh, Great Big Sea, still very much active in uh, making music and um, wrote a book to uh, help us uh, get through these uh, heavy times, as he calls them. All together now in Newfoundlander's Light Tales for Heavy Times. So WordFest event, uh, virtual event, December 10th, uh, 7 p.m., WordFest.com. Tickets available and, as mentioned, you can uh, add on the meal blowers in Grafton, uh, cooking up some Atlantic haddock, some uh, mini lobster rolls, and uh, all the work. So you can throw that in if you want. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.